The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Right now, though, I want to turn our attention to the bond market. A J.P. Morgan strategist, Jay Barry, said in a note today that low U.S. long-term yields may be the, quote, new normal. Uh, here to give us his take on this is Bob Cinch, global strategist for Amherst Pierpont Securities. Uh, Bob, do you agree? Well, I, I, you know, I think there's relative to what, but but certainly I think the, the profile um, of of longer term yields probably lower than some of us who have been the, around the markets for forty years or so would uh, would think are normal and I think part of that is demographic right we have uh, a lot of us uh, baby boomers who are reaching retirement age we're looking for income uh, we tend to invest uh, in bonds and uh, and I think that that has changed the dynamics however. I think the supply-demand situation is going to change a lot in 2018. Um, you know, the Treasury last year began in small steps reducing its balance sheet. By the fourth quarter of this year, they're going to be reducing their balance sheet by $50 billion of securities a month, you know, split between Treasuries and mortgages. And that's a pretty substantial amount of extra supply on top of what look like they'll be widening budget deficits. So I think the supply-demand dyna- supply dynamics will be changing pretty significantly this year. We think inflation picks up a little bit this year. And, you know, the Fed moves four times. You add that up and, and we come up with a 10-year um, Treasury yield close to 350 at the end of the year. Wow. That's that's a pretty big projection of 350. I'm looking right now and currently the 10-year Treasury yield is uh, 245. So that would be uh, more than a percentage point increase from where we are today. Um, do you think that this is going to be a violent unwind or do you think it's just going to be gradual throughout the year because that matters the path of this yes i I do and i i think it's it's probably we'll have little spasms we certainly had a little one yesterday um as the market started the year but i think it will be fairly gradual because i think the markets are going to be dragged along sort of kicking and screaming um you know with fed rate hikes and each time they hike the markets will go like okay but is that it for a while um, you know, my colleague Steve Stanley thinks not. Um, he does think we'll see core inflation at or very close to 2% by the end of the year. And not only a Fed that, that wants to normalize rates, but also a uh, an ECB that we think ends their asset purchase program at the end of September. And the BOJ, which probably uh, at some point later in the year, perhaps after a leadership change, says enough is enough. We just own enough JGBs. We own ETFs. We own... Uh, a lot of everything in the Japanese markets, and it's really time for that to come to an end. So 
Again, I think balance sheet reduction by the Fed and a withdrawal from asset purchases by foreign central banks really changes the supply-demand dynamics pretty substantially. Bob Sinch, can you speak about the yield curve and perhaps help us to understand why talking about the yield curve might just be a waste of time? Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't go as far as saying it's a waste of time, but I do think there's a lot of exaggeration that goes on. Um, look, I, I, you know, I've done a lot of work on the shape of the yield curve and and its ability to forecast the economy over you know the last four or five decades. And um, you know, there are times when it's a reasonably good indicator. Normally, that's when the curve becomes very inverted. But for example, we had a, a period where the yield curve, the two ten spread that everyone likes to focus on, began declining substantially and and actually turned negative uh, by you know two, 1995, early 96, and yet um, real GDP growth didn't peak until the first quarter on a year-over-year basis until the first quarter of 2000. So number one, there can be very variable lags between when the yield curve flattens or inverts um, twos tens and and when the economy adjusts. The other one is is whether the yield curve really tells us what it used to tell us. And one of the things that uh, Steve Stanley and I have looked at is actually comparing the real Fed funds rate adjusted for core inflation to the twos tens spread. And you go back from 1985 through through 2005. Um, very, very, actually through 2010, very tight correlation, which is really broken down in the last three years. So now you have a twos tens spread uh, of about 53 basis points, which is actually flatter than the average for the last 30 years of 1.15%, whereas the real Fed funds rate is still zero. It's still sharply lower. So if I look at the two of those and the break in the correlation, I say to myself, well, which one seems like it's correct and which one might be distorted? I think it's the yield curve that's distorted because we've had so much purchasing by by global central banks. And in fact, our view is that the stance of monetary policy is still very accommodated with a real Fed funds rate that's virtually zero. Bob Sinch, thank you very much for being with us. Global strategist for Amherst Pierpont Securities, talking about the yield curve and what it means for the future of the economy. By the end of the century, database company Zillow Group estimates that almost a half a million Miami homes could be literally underwater, that is, with actual H2O covering them. Here to tell us how this is changing the real estate market in that region is Christopher Flavel. He's a climate policy reporter for Bloomberg News and comes to us from Washington, D.C. Christopher, can you just give us a sense of how seriously uh, home buyers in Florida, and particularly the south of Florida, are taking this threat right now? You know, it's it is really hard to tell. I think there's a lot of home buyers who just uh, either are not aware of it or are aware of it and don't worry about it. They say it won't hit me. But the trend that we're writing on is there's a growing number and it's still a minority, but it's a larger and larger minority saying I'm aware of this because I can't ignore it. They've got what's called sunny day floods in South Florida. We're out of nowhere on a sunny day. 
You'll have water coming up through the limestone, through the streets, causing a huge headache. And then you get storms like Irma. And we wrote a piece looking at how Irma reminded people that living in this beautiful part of the country also has consequences. And eventually, no one knows when, but eventually those consequences, as they get worse, will start to drive down home values. No one knows when that will happen, but I think the signals are starting that that it could be soon. Christopher, what about the idea of going to higher ground? That might be a challenge in Florida, but there are things called apartment houses. Some people have actually moved from their homes into those apartment houses, but even that doesn't seem to help. Yeah, I, I spoke to one homeowner who had sold his home in a lovely part of South Florida called Coral Gables a few years back, worried that eventually property values would fall, and he wanted to get it before then. So he bought a smaller condo. He downsized. He's on a high ridge uh, in Biscayne Bay. And lo and behold, his building was just throttled by, by Irma. Uh, and he said he's going to leave Florida altogether because he doesn't want the physical insecurity or the financial insecurity of knowing that whatever money he puts into property could be wiped out if enough other home buyers say, I also don't want this headache uh, and leave before he does. So you're in this sort of preemptive cycle where people are thinking about leaving the market now, even though climate change is not yet a terrible thing, it's just annoying, but they're worried that if they don't leave, they might get stuck in a downward market, and so they're leaving now, and others might follow. So, Christopher, they seem to be in the minority, because right now developers are still building. I was just in Florida, still a lot of building going on. Uh, and frankly, the new tax law will only push more people, or the theory is, down to Florida and other low-tax states from higher tax states that's already happened. So at, at what point are we going to hit a tipping point, and, and how much does mm. the acceleration in development give given some of these climate change uh, effects, how much does that uh, exacerbate the potential effects? Well, it seems like the one of the most interesting parlor games in South Florida right now is that debate over just what the trigger will be, uh, whether it is another big storm, whether it's another change in policy. Now, last year, the House of Representatives looked at a measure that would have required, A, higher flood insurance rates for most cases, and B, disclosure by people selling their homes of the flood risk facing those particular homes. Either of those changes, neither of which became law, but if they became law and the Senate will take them up at some point this year, those could have a real downward effect. Uh, another thing could be if people's attitudes change. It's so hard to measure the psychology of climate change. At some point, you could flip where the average person in South Florida says, I don't care about this, and then bang, they right. wake up and something happens and they do care. And and knowing when that might happen is just impossible. Well, uh, one, one, one interesting part of the story that you wrote was looking at a man named Albert Slap, whose business is surging in the wake of increasing fears about flooding and climate change. Can you give us a sense of his perspective and how this could be one of the signs you were talking about that attitudes might be changing a bit? Yeah, he runs sort of a boutique firm uh, that will give you very tailored flood risk information on a property. If you're thinking of buying it, if you're an insurance company, if you're a lender thinking of issuing a mortgage, he'll tell you what the likely flood risk for that particular home or parcel of land might be. And he said since Irma, his business is just on fire. And I think he's right in saying that what's good for him isn't necessarily good for the market because the more people pay attention to this, the more they buy or don't buy a home based on risk and not just how pretty it is, the more people will say, you know what, it's lovely here, but these tidal floods will just get worse 
these storms will get worse, and the seas will come up. Uh, and so eventually there's some intangible trade-off that none of us can understand, but it happens inside the head of every potential home buyer saying, is it worth the risk to live somewhere this gorgeous? Uh, and that, that calculation is impossible to predict, but it will eventually flip over to probably not. Well, Christopher, just quickly, he says that there was a quote of a story where he talks about how uh, when you have fish swimming in your driveway, it is not an amenity like a swimming pool. Not everyone wants fish in their driveway, but, you know, if the view is lovely, maybe maybe you'll suck it up for a little while. Uh, eventually, probably that's not the kind of market you want to invest in. Christopher Flavel uh, with the outlook on fish in your driveway, climate policy reporter for Bloomberg News, coming to us from Washington, D.C., The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. The tax bill has been passed. President Trump has signed it. The question now is, what is it and what will the effect be on real estate markets, particularly in big cities that have notoriously high tax rates like New York? Here to explain to us his vision of it is Seth Pinsky, Executive Vice President and Investment Manager of the RXR Metropolitan Emerging Market Strategy for RXR Realty in New York City. Seth, you were quoted in a story in The Real Deal saying, this is a dra dramatic new reality that New York City is going to be operating under. In many ways, this tax bill was deliberately and maliciously designed to hurt this region. How much is it going to hurt it with respect to real estate? Well, you know, it, it's very hard to say, actually. It's so disturbing about the tax bill, in addition to the fact that it was designed uh, to harm this region and regions like it, is the fact that uh, I'm fairly certain that very few of the people who voted for the bill, uh, let alone the person who signed the bill, actually know what's in it. Um, and it's likely that there are elements in it um, that are going to be quite harmful, uh, especially to homeowners in high-cost suburbs, areas with very high property tax. Um, but there also could be parts of the tax bill that could be very beneficial to the city's economy. And uh, I think it's going to be one of these things that we're just going to have to watch play out to see what the net impact is. But there will certainly be winners and losers in this region. Talk a little bit about the connection between infrastructure and real estate development and how it has evolved, let's say, in big urban areas like New York or other metropolitan regions. Well, infrastructure is really the key to affordability um, in any region. Um, in a place like New York, where more and more people are trying to squeeze into the same amount of area, the only way really that you can lower costs is by building more. And as we've seen in the city over the last several years, when you try to increase development in the same small number of locations, you end up hitting political roadblocks. People don't want to have 100-story towers next to them. So if you're going to address that, you really need infrastructure to spread people out. The idea is not so much to create sprawl. That is a recipe for, uh, for significant problems that we've all seen in, in the suburbs. But the idea is to use infrastructure to make it so that people can live farther away by distance, but still be close to the city in terms of time. 
But having said that, that's an issue that bedevils not just New York, but I think of Silicon Valley, where people's commutes have been extended to two hours, in some cases three hours, and they're driving. Uh, you have Los Angeles, the same kind of situation. Atlanta, huge traffic snarls. Is there a better way to think about how to invest money in real estate so that we get the outcome that doesn't involve sitting in a two and a half hour commute each way? Sure. Um, well, one of the things that we at RxR have been doing is focusing on suburban transit lines, looking at rail nodes around which in many cases you find acres and acres of surface parking lots, even though they're easily accessible to everything that is beneficial about New York City. For example, um, we worked with the city of New Rochelle uh, to entitle about 11 million square feet of development in downtown New Rochelle. The travel time from New Rochelle by Metro North into Grand Central is actually shorter than the travel time from my neighborhood in Brooklyn, Park Slope, uh, to Grand Central. So these are areas that are incredibly transit accessible, that have the infrastructure today, but that we're simply not taking advantage of. You know, I'm struck by the fact that actual transactions, sales of uh, used homes in New York City declined in the fourth quarter, and I believe were the lowest since 2011. A lot of this had to do with the uncertainty around the tax plan, what the mortgage interest deductibility might look like, uh, what the SALT deduction uh, might look like. I I'm just wondering, you know, especially as you see development continuing in this region, you know, is this uncertainty that could basically send uh, values down substantially in a way that people are not expecting right now? Well, it's hard to imagine that the loss of deductibility of property tax, um, even more than income taxes, uh, is not going to have an impact on the price of homes, especially in the suburbs where property taxes in many communities are 20, 30 plus thousand dollars a year. Um, at the same time, though, there are larger economic forces at work. Um, and you can imagine a world in which through the Trump administration and what the Republican Congress is doing, uh, an industry like Wall Street were to boom. And in that case, that would have a positive impact on values. And that's not necessarily a good thing for society. It's not necessarily a bad thing for society. But the impact is really very hard to evaluate at this point. Um, and again, until we start to really be able to unpack this bill, which was passed uh, under the cover of darkness, it's going to be hard to say whether its, it's net effect is going to be good or bad. But right now, commercial real estate investors seem to be pretty excited about it. Yeah, look, uh, there are things in the, the bill, um, maybe accidentally, maybe uh, done on purpose given the uh, profession of our president, uh, that clearly were designed to help the real estate industry. And so from the real estate industry's perspective, those changes are going to be positive. But at the end of the day, the success or failure of the real estate industry is really driven by the success or failure of the market in which the real estate is, is located. And again, until we see how all the different forces play out, it's going to be hard to say exactly how it's going to impact our market. Just to go back to the New Rochelle example, because you put together a group of interested parties, investors, plus the city. This is a part of a larger redevelopment. Is that what we're going to see in more of these, I want to say, satellite communities, that there are going to be major redevelopments all along the coast and really in every place that's centered 
that uses a big urban area as a center? It's a good question. And what's interesting is that historically, the suburbs were actually quite averse to high-density development. Um, many of the people who moved to the suburbs moved to the suburbs intentionally to get away from everything urban. Um, what's been happening over the last couple of decades, though, is that um, the urban areas have become more and more successful. They're especially attractive to young professionals and aging baby boomers and empty nesters. And that's made it difficult for the suburbs to attract the businesses that are looking for that workforce. That in turn has undermined the tax bases of these communities. And so you are starting to see an alignment now that didn't exist in the past between these communities and the development community. And the key, I think, to being successful in these communities is not coming in and simply imposing a vision on the community, but working with the vision to understand what the community, with the community, I should say, to understand what the community's vision is, and then to, to help to realize that vision in a way that's collaborative. Thank you very much for being with us. Seth Pinsky, Executive Vice President, Investment Manager of the RXR Metropolitan Emerging Market Strategy. Trading is relatively muted, and there's a question about whether uh, this is just because everyone's getting back to work and doesn't really uh, feel like uh, doing too much quite yet, or is this because MIFID II uh, just went into effect today? Here to talk about uh, those regulations, which are the biggest regulatory overhaul in 10 years for Europe, is Trista Kelly, Market Structure Team for Bloomberg, who joins us from London. Uh, Trista, how much can we really tell about how smoothly MIFID Two is going at this point, given the fact that a lot of the biggest venues are not yet uh, forced to be in compliance. Yeah, that's a good question. I think one of the the things that traders have been saying is there is a uh, cap coming on dark pools, and that does not kick in until next week. And so once that dark pool cap comes in, then we're going to see uh, probably see some flow start to scatter around all these new trading venues, and that might affect liquidity as well. Wait, wait, wait. Just back up for one second. Uh, dark pool cap. Can you just explain what that is? Sure. Uh, Basically, the EU is saying there's way too much trading that's that's happening in the dark right now. So with MIFID, let's cap or limit the amount that can go into dark pools. And a lot of these dark pools, uh, some of them are run by exchanges themselves. For example, the London Stock Exchange has one called Turquoise. So they're saying let's get that onto that trading onto lit, lit, uh, lit exchanges. Excuse me. And uh, so, but those limits will not kick in until next week. And a lot of banks are saying, okay, well, we can have our uh, alternative trading venue called a systematic internalizer. This is getting geeky very quickly. I apologize. No, this but- is what it is. And, and you know, this is a 1,500-page bill, we should say, uh, with more than $2 billion of expense put into compliance with it. Lots of geeky uh, sections, but they have a significant impact. Please go on. Right. So, so the biggest banks are saying, okay, well, we have these new venues called systematic internalizers because we won't be able to use what's called a bro- broker crossing network work anymore. So everybody's expecting, oh, these a lot of this flow, once these dark pool caps kick in, is going to go to these systematic internalizers. Systematic internalizers are not subject to dark pool caps. And let's face it, once you get over the standard market size, they can go pretty much as dark as they want. So that's one of the reasons, one of the many reasons a lot of people are saying these big bulge bracket banks are going to do so well out of this. 
Trista, do you get the impression, or maybe maybe you have another thought about it, that the people who put together these regulations, do they understand who actually works in the financial industry and how they think? Well, if we if you read our our, our top live blog today, we yes. had a lot of traders complaining, both on Twitter and and elsewhere. I mean, it's not new; they've been complaining for a long time. But that's, I mean, that's what market market traders do and regulators obviously say well come on we're just trying to make things more transparent and better for the little guy you know it, it, it there's a yin and yang here and what and it remains to be seen if 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 you know which has the better point but, but i mean yes there are some unintended consequences and some big loopholes and i mean i will add the us sec has a totally different rules when, than mifid when it right. comes to how research is paid for so these types of things are going to have to be worked out at some point and so that's why people are saying, well, what about MIFID 3? And yeah, it's it's kind of giving me a headache already. Dave, just real quick, uh, trading usually is muted at this point in the year, correct? Like, it's not an anomaly that we're just seeing light volumes right now, or we can't attribute that purely well, to new changes. It, it tends to be. I mean, I will note that if you look at uh, trading in NYC and NASDAQ listed shares, uh, 955 million or so in the first hour, uh, up roughly 15% from yesterday. So things are gearing up for a new year, and uh, that's playing out in terms of the kind of numbers we're seeing. Dave Wilson, thank you very much. Bloomberg Stocks Commerce, send Dave an email at dwilson at bloomberg.net and sign up for his daily free email newsletter. It will make you a smarter investor. Our thanks also to Trista Kelly, Market Structure Team Leader for Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.